Tēnā koutou, I'm Karen Hay. In 2015, the New Zealand Society of Authors commissioned the most recent interviews in its 30-year oral history project. It's these authors who will be sharing their experiences in the third season of the NZSA Oral History Podcast. last episode, author Tessa Duda talked about her journey through journalism and motherhood and how those roles influenced her development as an author. Along the way, Tessa has dedicated herself to issues of author's rights, both as an advocate and in her writing projects. For example, Tessa told Deborah Shepherd in 2015 about what motivated her to write Margaret Mahi, A Writer's Life, the first major portrait of Mahi, a beloved New Zealand children's author. The reason I wrote that book uh, about Margaret was was to try and hoist her reputation to where I personally think it should be. And I suppose a lot of the things that I've done since I became a published writer in 80, well, even since, particularly since Alex, and why I be- became president of the, of the Society of Authors, that was for a number of reasons, but I've just generally felt that literature generally in this country, and particularly children's literature, is under represented in the media, it's underpaid, it's underrated. underrated. Um, People keep telling me that the sales for adult fiction in this country are pitiful, Mm -hmm. with one or two exceptions like um, Eleanor Catton and to a lesser degree um, Anna um, Smale's new book, which also has been Booker shortlisted. Lloyd-Jones, but by and large the public will rush out to buy a book about an all-black and they won't, they won't look at the fiction. Um, so I suppose I, it's probably in my nature to be a bit of a crusader. Well, that's good. <laughs> we need I, crusaders. And I've been, been sort of at it ever since, really. I mean, when we talk about storylines, there's certainly an element of that there. How did that develop? Who, who established that? Um, in the 1970s, Betty Gilderdale and a teacher at the Auckland College of Education called Tom Fitzgibbon started something called the Children's Literature Association of New Zealand. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> a little misleading because it was only ever an Auckland organisation, but there was later a branch in Hamilton and Hawke's Bay and one in Wellington for a while, one in Christchurch for a while. But these very small, slightly amateurish groups they weren't even charitable trusts in those days. They were simply incorporated societies and were fairly low-key. But they did try to bring children's literature into a sort of um, public arena. And in 1990, I was involved with the setting up of the New Zealand Children's Book Foundation, which was different, it was separate to the association, the CLA, um, because we believed it needed to be a national organisation, which the CLA was never going to become. So we sort of existed side by, uh, coexisted side by side. And in 1992, there was this wonderful hui at Joy Carley's place. This was in Easter of 92. It was a few months before my daughter died. There were 35 of us there. Joy said, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a festival where writers and readers could come together, and the children could meet their favourite writers. It wasn't a book festival as such, it was a writer's festival, and there is a difference. And I and Gaylene Gordon took the idea back to the Children's Book Foundation, as it was called, me more than Gaylene, because I was a committee member, 
and they agreed to run the first festival. So the first festival was run in um, 1993 at the Auckland Museum and 11,000 people poured in the doors. I mean, we were just mm -hmm. uh, just astonished at the, at the reaction and we, the festival has been held ever, ever since, every, every year. Now, for an, what is essentially an amateur organisation, a volunteer organisation, that's quite an achievement. Yeah. And I've been in on every single one of those except the year I was in Montan. So, yes, it was a Joy Carly idea. Galen and I took it to the Book Foundation, which is slightly different from what Joy's got in her book because I think her, her, biography, her autobiography, it's a little bit, it's not quite accurate from there. Um, but we've run this festival ever since, and now we're looking at a budget of something like $220,000 every year to find. And there's always been a large sum of money, but that's the sort of money we have to find yes, from grants every happen. year. It's a big challenge and it's a big achievement. But you get the numbers. We, we do, yeah. Fantastic. And, you know, we're already planning next year. But I was in on that foundation right from the start, and in 2005 we decided that we needed to have a trust which took the big view of the money um, and strategic planning. Um, so we have a structure whereby we have the Storylines Trust and then the Storylines Foundation is the membership arm and there's a management committee which really fulfills a lot of the functions that would otherwise be done by a full-time CEO, but we can't afford a, a CEO, so we have a part-time one and an events manager um, who do the professional side of things and then a very active management committee. And I'm the chair of that at the moment and I've been on that committee and the festival committee for years and years and years. <laughs> so now you, mm. you actually, you were at the New Zealand Society of Authors, you were a president there yeah. and you, you don't resign from that, do you? You just decide not to carry on because, <laughs> because you went over to putting your energy into storylines well, instead. Well, I'll just finish talking about yeah. storylines. Simultaneously with all this, with what I've just been saying about storylines, I joined the Society of Authors in 1992. 82. 82. Years slip by. <laughs> 82. I was talked into being vice president around about 91, and I became president in 1996 to 98. Um, Yes, I was very active in storylines all the way through. And the reason that I've remained active with storylines and in a sense put more of my energies there is because I'm the only writer. And all my attempts to get other writers, I mean, most children's writers in New Zealand do not live in Auckland. That's the start. Um, and right from the beginning, I felt it was very important that there was a writer's voice in there. And I enjoy committee work. Um, having a task to do and a, an event to organise something. I mean, I, I'm not saying I'm doing it out of sense of duty, but I've been very conscious that I, for all those years, I have been the only writer there putting the writer's point of view. So that, for example, when somebody gets up and says, well, you know, do we really need to pay these authors because we're giving them an opportunity for uh, self-promotion? That really makes my blood boil. So we need you there as an advocate. Oh, I've been an advocate for a long time. And right at the start of the, of the festival in 93, there was, fortunately, I'm very pleased to say there was no argument. But what I said right at the beginning was, we need to pay the writers full professional fees and it would please me if we could pay them slightly more than the Book Council. And we have. 
And that's why we need that huge budget, because we have no income for that, or very little income for that festival, but we pay the writers well. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that would have happened if I hadn't been there. Another thing I've never said to anybody, but I will say it here, the idea of having a Margaret Mahi medal was mine. The festival was sort of, wasn't my idea, but I sort of helped make it happen. When was the first Margaret Mahi medal? Uh, it was Margaret herself gave the first one in 1991. I need to check that. Mm -hmm. okay. It was about that time. We say it's New Zealand's most prestigious recognition of, of a lifetime achievement. Interestingly, after Margaret died, another group decided they'd like to give a medal to lifetime achievement and call it the Margaret Mahi Medal. And we were very quick to tell them, well, sorry, we've had one going for 20 years and we do not appreciate somebody deciding that they're going to create another one. We didn't have to get terribly aggressive, but we had to make it very clear that we would would be very unhappy at a second Margaret Mahi Medal for Lifetime Achievement being given. Also the idea of having a bus tour, I think, if I remember rightly, was mine. So these things have stood the test of time and they probably would have happened. Somebody would have come up with the idea, but I'm quite. it gives me quite a lot of internal pleasure to be able mm. to think, well, you know, whatever storylines has achieved, some of them have been on events which I dreamed up and mm. Because they're a great group of people, they picked up the ball and ran with it. And um, here we are all these years later. We've now been running this festival for, what, 23 years. Um, having said that, we, Storyline, still struggles to get proper, what I think is proper, recognition from what you might call the, the publishing and literary establishment in Wellington. And by that I'm meaning the Book Council, I'm meaning book publishers in New Zealand, the um, Booksellers Association, and uh, Creative New Zealand. That's the literary establishment yes. based in Wellington. It's mm -hmm. very strong, as you know. And we sometimes get the feeling that we're treated as a sort of bunch of volunteers up in Auckland. And a very good example of that was for five years we wrote to them during the 1990s and said, to Booksellers New Zealand, we believe there are more than, and we, the Storylines hardcore, are professionals in this area. They're teachers, they're librarians, they're authors, they're publishers. They're people who really know the field. And we wrote to them five years in a row and said, we believe that there are more than 20 books being published in New Zealand which are worthy of some sort of special recognition in the same way as the Australians do with their book awards, they have a long list, which they publish at the beginning of the year. Um, I can't remember how many, but it's something of the order of 10 in each genre. They then have a six month period where they concentrate on selling and promoting those long lists. Then they have the short list and then they have the awards. We said, please, would you consider creating a long list? Well, a couple of years we were ignored completely. Then we got letters very late in the day to say, well, we know we don't agree for the need for one and we're not going to do it. So in the end, I went to Australia to uh, spend some time with a very good friend of mine, Agnes Neuenhausen, who was a powerhouse for young adult writing in Australia. She is a very key person in why they have a very good young adult genre uh, writing in Australia. And I was having a little moan to her because I know her very well. And I said, you know, these people, I said, what's wrong with having a long list? Wouldn't it be to their advantage? They're, it's being run by booksellers in New Zealand, for God's sake. Why don't they 
see if this is a selling opportunity. Mm. Nope. So she said, oh, she said, forget them. She said, do your own. <laughs> okay. So um, I came back to New Zealand and I said to this group, I said, look, why don't we just forget trying to get the AIM Book Awards to do it? Why don't we just do our own? So we started the Nodal book, Books in 2000, books published in 1999, and we've been running it ever since. And it's still a source of slight frustration to me because I would love to be able to promote it more than we do, but it's a question of money and resources. And we only have two paid, part-time paid employees. So um, we do what we can and we are gradually hoisting it onto a higher level because I think don't think most people would know very much that they exist, that there is a storyline's notable book list, up to 10 books in each genre. But we're doing our best and they are certainly well established. And it's very pleasing when we hear from publishers who say that actually they almost value the Storyline's Notable Books list more than they they do the New Zealand Post or what they're now calling the Book Awards Trust Books, Books of the Year. The publishers very much value that that listing because we put out a sticker and hopefully it helps with sales. Oh, I wouldn't know the details, but... Yeah, this, I mean, Storylines is a, is a great organisation. It's been through some bad periods, basically, usually nearly always because of lack of communication. And it's so hard working with volunteers because, you know, you can't put them off, you can't... You've got to accept the best that they can do and try and make it work, and it's a real challenge. Um, I'm a trustee because the trust board was formed in 19... Sorry, 2005, and present I'm the chair of the of the management committee, but I'm going to hand that over quite soon. I've decided I've done my bit. Yes, you certainly yeah, have. Yeah. Can we please mm. um, move on to the New Zealand Society Awards? Sure. I'm just aware of time sure. that we need to move a bit. Um, so you joined in 1982, mm-hmm. involved as the vice president from 1991 to 94, and president from 90... You just said before, and I can't find it here. 96 to 98. 96 mm. to 98. Some of the critical campaigns that you've been involved in while mm-hmm. in those two positions. Can I just talk for a couple of minutes on my early experiences with the society? Yes, because they, they did colour how I then came into this position of being a vice president mm-hmm. and going down to these meetings in Wellington every month and then felt confident, and for whatever reasons that were also going on at the time, that I took on the presidency. If I could just spend a little time. Those early meetings that I went to, I was somewhat dismayed. I was a woman, I was a children's writer, I was hardly known. 1982, I'd only published one book. Um, But even through that period until 1990, those meetings were very dominated, very much dominated by the, 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 the elder statesmen. So the names that immediately spring to mind are Carl Stead and um, Kevin Ireland, who had just mm. recently come back from England. It was pretty much a conversation between those people. Bernard Brown. Bernard Brown. But Bernard I wouldn't put in this category no. because Bernard is an absolute sweetie and he's been president, uh, he's been treasurer of the society for years, for decades. Mm. And still going. He's still going. And his auctions that he runs at the end of the year are one of the funniest events you'll ever go to. He's just amazing. Now, I wouldn't put Bernard in this category, but the these other gentlemen, sort of Alistair Thompson, that's her, Alistair Patterson, that's the name I'm trying to think of. These gentlemen sort of dominated the conversation. They, 
it wasn't a society of authors in those days, it was a pen group, and therefore it was quite ideological. Um, and also it had this ongoing feud with Wellington, which seemed to me to be very boring. It was, looking back on it, I suppose it was typical of organisations at the time. It was. Did you get anything out of it at that It was time? a gentleman's club, I yeah, would say then. Yeah. Um, did I get anything out of it? Well, yes, there were other writers there that I, mm. I enjoyed meeting, and... I suppose I've always felt that I needed to support the society because it's working for me and all the other people who are trying to make a living out of writing and therefore it needs at least my money and and sometimes more than that. And so during the 80s, I sort of dutifully went to these meetings um, and when John Craner asked me in 1990, thereabouts, he said, would you, could I put your name forward for being North Island Vice President, I said, good heavens, John. I said, I, I don't know anything about the politics of only what I hear at meetings. And I said, I, I'm not competent. I'm. He said, oh, yes, you are. He said, you, you just get down, you'll soon pick it up. So I, I allowed him to put my name forward. This was 91. And I started going to these meetings, which again seemed to me to be very, have a, a subtext of political manoeuvring, which I found difficult. I actually can't remember who the president was at that time because I know that Gordon, Gordon McLaughlin. Well, Gordon came in, I'm pretty sure. Oh, it was Chris Elts, I think. Um, Gordon came in in 94, about the time that Creative New Zealand was set up as an independent legal body. Out of the Arts Council. It was, took over from, yes, from the Arts Council. Now, I had been on the children's selection panel for the QE2 Arts Council for seven years which meant that I went to Wellington, having read a great pile of manuscripts. We had a meeting, several authors, a couple of other Wellington people I can't remember now, Rosemary Wildbud, who was the literary advisor, um, and I think one other person from, from the Arts Council. And there were about eight of us there, and we sat around a table and we debated. And we knew we had, I think, for most of that time, we had $140,000 to spend to give away in grants because the grants were allocated by the council. And it seemed to me, although I never really stopped to think about it, but it seemed to me that that was a fair allocation to the children's writers and illustrators. Well, what happened was that we debated rigorously those people. A lot of us knew them personally. We knew that a writer, if they didn't get one this year, they might have been trying for three years, if they didn't work this one year, they would give up. We, we, we sort of knew where they were at we knew that this one possibly could wait for a year or so, that they were committed and they wouldn't they wouldn't be too discouraged if they didn't get this one. So there was a lot of debate which included this sort of personal knowledge. And I was always very happy with the decisions that we made. They were often quite different from what I um, personally thought when I went down there. But I think that's one of the things that you have to be when you go on one of these panels is the, the, the accept the fact that you may be persuaded. Mm -hmm. Or you may persuade somebody else if you've got a real uh, somebody you want to champion. So I was always very comfortable with the grants that we gave, um, usually a couple of big ones, a couple of smaller ones, and then um, a considerable number, maybe six or seven of the um, 10,000 um, variety. And I believed that the children's writing community had faith in those awards. 
and they felt they were going to good people who, you know, at the time in their careers were deserving to get them. What happened in 1994, the Act came in which dismantled the, the um, Arts Council and created Creative New Zealand, which as somebody said, sounds like a hairdresser in Ekatahuna. I suppose we've got used to it now, but it caused a fair amount of concern at the time. Why not just call it an Arts Council? That's what it is. However, we're on to rebranding by now. Mm. What happened was that at a stroke, all that, I believe, goodwill, I don't believe that the old Arts Council was a hotbed of cronyism or that the, the literature community generally mistrusted or disliked or were downright critical of what, what they did in terms of glance. I think there was general trust, really. That's what I remember. Um, and now what have we got? Um, the Creative New Zealand Act was passed. Gordon McLaughlin immediately got on to his, um, cast himself in an aggressive role, to, particularly towards Claudia Scott, and he wrote some very tough stuff about her, and I think it was North and South or Metro. And there was no doubt from what all the stories we were hearing from Wellington was that it was a very unhappy place in that first year and that Professor Scott from the university had suddenly been given a hands-on project to put all her theories into, into operation mm. and that the staff spent a good deal of time in tears. Nobody quite seemed to know what was going on except that Professor Scott seemed to have almost taken on the job of being the executive officer. Uh, rather than the chairman of the Board of Governors. And I think it was Doug Graham who was the Minister of Arts at the time. Um, the idea was to bring in business accountabilities, establish a business model, and instead of the ring-fenced grants allocations, we now had the contestable model. And I can remember saying right at the beginning, I believe you could be more guilty of cronyism in at those contestable panels, uh, sorry, those panels that were set up to, to decide the grants. I don't know how they've been modified since. I know they have to a degree, but I, I'm, I'm out of touch now. But the way it was working then was that they appointed a panel of four or five people, and even the appointments were political. I mean, you could stack an appointment. You could stack a panel. We know that happens. Um, they were given the manuscripts to read. They marked them out of 10 or 100 or whatever it was. I always maintained that they could settle a score in private in that way, or you could booster somebody in private that way. You never had to debate them in person rigorously. What the, I think the literature community was extraordinarily um, dismayed by finding that these grants were now being decided by a sort of hands-off theoretical model rather than the give and take of, of a panel which, mm. first of all, knew what they were talking about um, and secondly had to defend their, um, their choices. And some of those, I remember some of those discussions were quite robust mm, sure. um, before we finally, you know, sort of came to an agreement. So the, the whole contestable model became very, uh, was very contentious. And Gordon 
publicly took on Creative New Zealand. He also published some pretty stringent criticisms of the Book Council, which he felt was a Wellington-appointed group answerable to nobody, getting large sums of money from Creative New Zealand, which they do, still are, always have done. So, so Gordon, I was vice president and Gordon was creating this public persona of the leader of the arts community because, in fact, it was the, the writing community seemed to be the only ones who were prepared to stand up and be critical and sort of say, well, hang on, what are you doing here? We, you know, you can't... Writers perhaps just are more vocal. Well, we're more disputatious, I'm sure that's correct. <laughs> and the most disputatious writers are very disputatious, mm. as we know, because some of those, mostly men... Um, are perfectly capable of carrying on feuds for years. And somebody like, you know, Carl Stead mm. and his well-known feud with <laughs> Fiona, Fiona and um, um, Loris Edmund. Um, but it wasn't a very pleasant time at all. And I was in a very extraordinary personal state at the yes, time. this was a difficult... Because I'd lost my daughter in July and my mother in July of 1992... In 94, when I was valiantly trying to <laughs> support Gordon McLaughlin, that wasn't a good time. I, I had sort of, I was focusing on group activities such as the acting that I was doing, the playwright I was doing with a small group of people called Metaphor. Mm -hmm. And um, I was having a lot of fun in the sense of putting myself in situations where there was a lot of laughter, but it was all distraction. When 96 came along and Gordon indicated that he'd had enough, uh, I sort of thought about it and I thought, well, I need I need distraction. I need to focus away from... Because I wasn't writing at this point um, what at all. Stopped, so what stopped you writing? Was it these deaths? Oh, totally. Mm. Yes. Mm. I couldn't concentrate. Um, I'm Karen Hay and this is the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. We'll be back to the podcast in a moment, but we want to remind you about the important work NZSA does for all New Zealand writers through advocacy, professional development programs, information, competitions, awards, mentorships and advisory and consultancy services. NZSA is the professional organisation for New Zealand writers. It lobbies for fair reward for your work and for the protection of your copyright. Visit authors.org.nz to find out more about joining. Tessa Duda tragically lost one of her daughters and her mother when they died within days of each other in 1992. Attempting to distract herself, she threw herself into advocacy work for the New Zealand Society of Authors, first supporting President Gordon McLaughlin in 1994 and then as president herself in 1996. To get back to the society and what I remember of the years that, say, included Gordon's years and my years, those four years, they were very tough years because... The ideology of the of Creative New Zealand seemed to be that at all costs we must keep the writers, particularly the writers, because they're a difficult bunch. We've got to keep them out of it. So 
they were sort of, we, we felt terribly sidelined. The first evidence of that was the dissolution of the advisory committee on what was then called the public lending right. That's gone quiet in recent years, and I'm not quite sure why, but certainly in 94, 96, through that period, um, there was enormous disquiet about that fund. First of all, its name, which apparently there was one person in the Ministry of Internal Affairs who was adamant when it was first set up that it was not going to be called the Public Lending Right. It was going to be called the Authors Fund because that it contained an element of patronage. And that's what they wanted and what, of course, the writers didn't. Um, so it was called the Authors Fund. Well, that was, that was a point of discussion. There had been an advisory committee. That went completely out the door. And the person who was, in fact, overseeing it from within Creative New Zealand was Rosemary Wildblood. And Rosemary had an enormous amount of power. I became very, very aware of that. She was the literary advisor, but she was much more than that because she was on practice and has remained on until quite recently. And even now she's still on some committees, but she remained on practically every committee going in Wellington that gave up money. She once told me during my tenure as president that she was a bit surprised at something that I'd done because one or two of the other people in Creative New Zealand told me that they couldn't ever trust Tessa again. And, of course, what I should have said to her was, I'm sorry, well, we don't actually trust what's happening in your organisation either because we didn't. We were being told one thing and then other things would sort of happen. There was nothing straightforward about it. And it almost as though this all this new business jargon uh, mm. was starting to obfuscate everything. Course, yes, yes, it was just everything was getting muddled and being reduced to accountabilities and outcomes mm. and all the mm. stakeholder jargon that we, we've now, unfortunately, had to get used to. Mm. I am firmly of the belief, although I have not ever seen any statistics, what I think happened when the contestable model came in was that, to take one example, the children's writers, I think immediately we started to lose out. I would expect that if a detailed analysis was done of the children's writers were given before and after Creative New Zealand was, um, was created, then I think it would show that there's been a marked decline in the number of children's writers and that it's not a coincidence that the 80s, when this panel that I was on was able to really support and encourage mm. the children's writing fraternity, that was a really good time for children's writing in the 80s. That coincided with Margaret, with me, with Gavin Bishop. And I used to be true, whether it still is now, but we are quite unusual in the fact that our arts funding doesn't mostly come from the government. It comes from the lot from um, lotteries. Lotto. So there's very little direct government support of the arts. Right. It's, it's hands off. Um, and I have some sympathy. I mean, I'm sure that if a writer, I mean, a writer like um, Kate de Golder, who's been on the arts board, the Creative New Zealand board, I think, mm. she has probably been... been um, found it incredibly difficult to strike a balance between all the different art forms and then all the festivals within those art forms mm. and the creative writing courses and all the rest of it, mm. the travel grants and all the rest of it, and then down here are the writers yeah. who are actually wanting to pay their grocery bills. Yeah. So I do have a lot of sympathy with what, what an incredibly difficult task it is. Mm. The villain of the piece is the government. Mm. 
they'll put seven, fourteen million dollars into the into the symphony orchestra, and much not much less way? into the into the ballet, the All Blacks, the Royal New Zealand Ballet. Um, then they give Creative New Zealand a small amount of money, and lotto money comes in, and a bit of philanthropy, and they give Creative New Zealand has to deal with the rest. Well, when you have a all, when we have a prime minister who has gone on record as saying that he doesn't think that writers will ever have the honour and glory of the All Blacks, he has actually said that. Well, he's written it. It's on his under his name. Mm. I would think possibly an underling wrote it. But um, I, that's that's really where the where the rot sets in. Mm. How effective do you think the NZSA is at advocating for writers? I tried to do my bit for those four years. Mm. I have to admire anybody like Carl Newburn. He's taken on the presidency or before people before mm. him. And I know they've been through a big restructuring recently and I do hope it works. At the end of the day, I, I get the feeling that the challenges are there and the, the obstacles that they're up against, the whole Wellington scene. And I can remember hearing from Maggie Tarver about Three years ago, she'd been to a copyright um, conference in Wellington and she was appalled by the attitude towards her, towards the society and towards copyright. People just don't think it should happen any longer mm. and have absolutely no sympathy with the fact that uh, an author actually wants to pay the rent. Mm. That's not enough reason for, for having it. They, and she, she was most disheartened. And I wonder... Are people trying to stop the rot of the public lending right? Because that's no doubt, that's decreasing every year. Is it? Yep. I, I've been keeping tabs. I've got mm -hmm. a running total of what I've been getting. It's gone down from 10,000. I'm one of the bigger ones. It's gone, gone down from something, 10-something every year, down to seven mm -hmm. in about four years. So, so how do you explain that? How's it, why is it oh, going the, down? The pie is not big enough. Right. The number of writers applying mm. is getting bigger and the pie isn't big enough, so the pie is just getting divided yep. slimmer and slimmer. Okay. And that is because the last time, as I understand it, the last time there was a major review of it was in Helen Clark's day when Philip Temple and William Taylor fronted up to Helen Clark and immediately there was an injection, I think, of a million dollars. And a lot of writers, professional writers, are actually dependent on that. No, they're not dependent on it. It's a, it is a considerable part of their of the annual income. Yes. Now we're not talking about the people who only get four hundred dollars a year. We're talking about the people who get say more than seven. Yeah. People like myself who are committed writers trying to make a living. Mm. Um, by contrast, in Australia, I hear people are receiving checks for sixty thousand wow. dollars, and that's only the public lending right. They've got the educational lending right as well, and they're getting large sums of money. Their leading writers could live off what they're getting from their lending right. Mm -hmm. And then you hear people saying, oh, well, of course, it, it just it rewards people who live to a, a great age. And that, when I heard that comment, I, that made me so angry. I said, it is, excuse me, it rewards productivity. The greater number of books you have produced, the higher your payment will be. It's got nothing to do with how, how long you live. It's so those books which are in why the difference in Australia? It's always been better over there. Um, they have a proper agency which runs it. It's not run by sort of default by well, was Creative New Zealand. It's now the National Library, I think. I'm 
think I'm correct in saying that when they brought in GST, the writing community over there made such a fuss that the sweetener was to say, all right, you can have an educational lending right. Um, and so that was set up, which means that school libraries for the children's writers are, um, are surveyed. And some of those people like John Marsden and Maurice Gleitzman and Paul Jennings and those people are getting quite significant amounts of money. That's over and above that yes. what their books are actually earning. They did have a very aggressive group of writers over there who made a great deal of public noise in a way which we don't often see here. And I think the reason for that is being a smaller community, we are so vulnerable, I think, yeah. to unpleasantness. Yes. You know, And if you stick your head up above the parapet here, you're blacklisted. You're blacklisted, yeah. Um, we're just... We've still got that very small, small town mentality, and I think to see somebody like Carl Newburn stick his head up about the question of, of who went to Frankfurt, um, I thought that was very refreshing, actually. Mm. But I'm not sure that it's done his career any good in right. terms of getting grants. I, I have no evidence for that, but I think there is probably a group of people in the society who probably didn't feel that was a right move, but. At least he was being honest and he mm. was saying what he felt mm. and being prepared to say it and good luck to him. Mm. So the things mm. that are, are good, I, I guess the, the mentorship scheme is a very... Oh, wonderful. Yes, I've had two of those and they both got published. Yes, um, yes the mentorship is great. Um, all those services they provide mm. to writers. Manuscript appraisals. Yeah. Yeah. I went to a writer's who about two years ago and I pleaded with him. I said, look, you've got two organisations are working their butts off for you. One storylines who gives you an opportunity to go to festivals and get paid for it mm -hmm. and promotes your work. That's what we do. And the other one is the Society of Authors. And I said, you can claim those as tax deductible. Um, I said, they are working very hard to try and improve your the amount of money you get from publishers, the royalties you get. Um, well, I can only speak for storylines, but there was no spike in, in enrolments, and it's not a lot of money. We're talking about $40. Mm. But whether this is a new group of writers coming up who are not aware of those old-fashioned sort of trade union yes. principles and why trade unions exist, I mean, in an ideal world, they wouldn't exist. We shouldn't need them, but we do but need we them do because need them. because there are some real bastards out there. Screw you. You've been listening to an interview from 2015 between Tessa Duda and Deborah Shepherd on the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History podcast. If you haven't already heard it, go back and listen to the last episode where they discuss other aspects of Tessa's life and career. Otherwise, make sure you join us next time by subscribing to the podcast on SoundCloud or wherever you listen. This podcast was produced by Elizabeth Kirkby MacLeod with audio support by Yana Tanahu Owen for the New Zealand Society of Authors. NZSA would like to thank the Southern Trust for funding this season. Noturno by Ottorino Respigi, which you are listening to now, is performed by Justin Bird. I'm Karen Hay, and this was a New Zealand Society of Authors oral history podcast. Kakite anō.